Uh, growing up, I, uh, I spent a lot of time in the woods. I lived in small town Ohio, and I got to just hang out in uh, just this wooded area. Um, and we spent every day out there building stuff. Um, I, uh, my building skills have not improved much since then. I still build in a very similar way. I look at what I have, and I piece it together with some, you know, tools that I've found or were given to me. And, uh, but, but that's where it all started. And, and, and not only that, but like uh, my faith, my Christian formation as a child, I grew up in a Christian home, but I learned a lot about scripture and what it meant to be a Christian and what it meant to, to give my life to Jesus through uh, Youth for Christ. And uh, I was a discipled by Youth for Christ staff. But in our rural town of Northwest Ohio, there was this fantastic ministry called Wilderness Ministry. It was a wilderness cabin. So Youth for Christ actually did their ministry, for the most part, out, out in the woods. There was this beautiful cabin. And that's where I learned about Jesus. And it was not just a place to learn about Jesus. It was kind of like a, a Christian Boy Scouts, so to speak. We learned how to do a lot of other things. We even had to learn about all of these animals. I learned a lot about Northwest Ohio animals uh, at this cabin. We, so we were memorizing verses and we were also memorizing birds. Now, of all the birds I had to memorize, I can remember two of them. The first one is red-winged blackbird, which is a great name for an animal because it's exactly what it is. I see a red-winged blackbird and I'm like, I know what that is. You know what that is? It's a red winged black. I wish other animals were called this. You could go on a safari. You'd be like, oh, look, it's the golden haired, you know, giant cat. Or you could sit in your living room and look out the window at the, you know, the trees and you could be like, oh, that's a bushy tailed rat. Or you could come to church and be like, oh, it's the red bearded bald man. This works great. I remember that one. The other bird I remember was the tufted titmouse. And the only reason I remember that one was because I was a junior high boy learning about birds. So I won't get into that one more. But I grew up in these, um, uh, uh, you know, this rural, my, my mom grew a lot of what we ate. Um, we had this huge garden that we had to go work in. She grew a lot of tomatoes. She canned a lot of tomato-based dishes. Um, she baked a lot of the breads that we ate, uh, the pizza um, uh, dough and bread. Uh, she had um, a, a trash can with a lid, this big, just it was, a tra it was a clean trash can, I assume, but she had that full of flour. That's how much flour we'd go through because she would just, one of seven kids, by the way, on a pastor's salary. So like, yeah, you have a lot of flour. You just make stuff out of flowers. This was what my mom did. I have a jar of flour in a six months. Like it probably goes bad before. You know, I don't know if flour goes bad. I should look that up because it's been up there for a while. That's how much flour I go through. So I grew up in this, this culture, this world of Northwest Ohio where we were outside. We were learning about creation. We were kind of in the raw materials and in, the, the, you know, starting from scratch. A lot of things from scratch. Um, and for now, that's still true. I, I live in the city, a very loud part of the city in Franklinton. Um, but for me, there's no more peaceful place than to go to a park or a forest. You know, last, last week we gathered outside and had a bunch of people join us. And it was just beautiful. Uh, I love that. Um, I almost, in college, went into environmental science. I took one class at, at my Christian university. And I was like, oh, man, I want to learn more about environmental science. And I almost went into it. Um, uh, to the point where I, I talked to somebody who, who, who uh, uh, did it professionally, like he was an environmental scientist, and, 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 and then I, I decided God wasn't releasing me for ministry. So here in this kind of conversation, I'm at home. And so I just want to let you know that I'm approaching this series on environment and creation care from a fairly like, personal biased place. Uh, I love the environment. Uh, I don't do everything that I should do to take care of it. Uh, it's a classic situation where I believe things that I don't necessarily practice. Uh, I'm sure we have a lot of those in our lives. Uh, maybe not all of us, but, but 
but, but enough of us. Um, I don't do, always do my part, but I can't shake the feeling that I should care and that it's worth it. And there's just something that I, I just can't stop caring. And that's where I'm coming from this series as we talk about the environment. To help us, I've had the chance to sit down with a few people, um, a few people who uh, I, I've been able to learn from. Today, I want to share a clip from one of those conversations. I, I got to know this guy, uh, Ryan Fote, at uh, our, our previous church, and, um, uh, well, not yet, but our, our previous church, um, and uh, he's a professor of meteorology at Ohio University, and he's a climate scientist. He's, he goes to Antarctica, and his specialty is studying how the ice in Antarctica is melting, but he's aware of the bigger conversation around climate change and the environment, and he also is a person person of faith who loves Jesus, who I can always depend on to pray for me, and just, we went on a mission trip together. I sat down with him, and I had an hour-long conversation around all of these topics, from his perspective, both as a professor, scientist, and as well as a devout follower of Jesus, and it was a fantastic conversation. It is currently on our website, so if, you know, you get bored and you're not stuck in the room, for you all online, you can just go listen to our conversation. But don't do that. Um, but I am going to share a clip. Um, I asked him a lot of questions around the science of it, so I encourage you to go check that out. But I also asked him, I said, as a person of faith, why should we care? Why does it matter? As somebody who is following Jesus, why care about the environment? Why care about climate change? You know, all this sort of stuff. And he gave an answer, and, and I think it's a good answer, and it also is going to shape the direction we're going as, as, a, as, a, as the series progresses. So for that, let's uh, play this clip about the conversation I had with Ryan Fote. Uh, I know you as somebody who's, uh, who loves Jesus and uh, could always count on for prayer and, and um, uh, uh, just enjoyed sharing uh, our uh, church life together. Tell me about how this connects to your faith uh, the work you do around climate science as somebody who's striving to, to follow Jesus? Yeah, I think there, there are two, two direct connections for me personally. Um, first, from the very onset of the Bible, it's clear that God put us in dominion of the earth, you know, um, in, in control of what's living on this planet and, and gave us the responsibility to be stewards of this planet. Mm -hmm. And I believe fully to the very core of my being that being a, a a good steward means being an ethical steward. It means that we take care of all of the resources, the things that we're consuming and taking from this planet, um, that we're not living beyond our means, but we're living within our means, um, and we're limiting our impact on the planet and others, at least our negative impacts, in, in a way that um, we would leave the world in a better place. Uh, we're consistently and, and constantly working from it. I think that's the, one of the first commands and one of the first charges that God gives to Adam and Eve. And uh, from all generations, I think that should be one defining principle um, of taking care of this planet and the things that are on it um, as a guiding principle for our lives. The second one is the social issue. Um, because climate change, whether or not you understand the science of it or under, um, even believe how, how humans are changing it, um, we can see dramatically right now how it's impacting people and how people are, are coping with drought and flood and reduced food and um, disease, even through the pandemic, right? And, and seeing that challenge that it's posing to people and my understanding of scripture and of who Jesus is at the very core of his being tells me that he's a person that 
really cares for those marginalized people that are always kind of pushed to the fringes of society, the outcast, the least, the last, and the lost. And because of Jesus's own lifestyle and concern for those people that often don't get the attention and the um, the, the the love that they deserve from from higher ups, it's our responsibility um, to act as Jesus did and give those people their their attention and make their concern our concern. Um, and so, because climate change affects those people more than it will affect probably you and I. Uh, we should be concerned about this because Jesus would be concerned about this, I, I believe. I think that he, he, he would not want people to be marginalized. He would not want people to be threatened, especially by something that they haven't caused. It's just an issue of injustice um, and equality and really of our white privilege being cast out onto the world in, in, in a grand scheme. And I think um, the Bible teaches us that Jesus would push against that sort of system. Just in summary, he, he said, you know, two, two things, which are kind of like the focus of our series. One is when it comes to creation care, what we're talking about is stewardship and what it means to care for the environment is a conversation around stewardship. And this is one of the first commands that God gives us in Genesis. We're going to talk about that. The second thing, and, and it was a conversation pulled out of a larger conversation. So I encourage you to listen to the podcast, but he's talking about a, it's a justice issue as well. So the reality is, um, is that the way in which the climate is changing and he will make a, if you listen to it, make a pretty compelling argument on why it's human caused, um, is, is going to produce change in the world in a way that impacts the poor in a much higher degree than those with wealth. So wealthy countries as well as wealthy individuals are able to mitigate and manage the changes in the environment because they have the, the resources to do it. You could just pay for more electricity to cover your air conditioning or, or whatever. Like you, you're able to move or you're able to adjust. Whereas those living in, 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 in uh, countries that are a little bit more impoverished are getting impacted by changes in climate in very profound ways from droughts to a variety of other types of things. So that's what we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to talk about stewardship and we're going to talk about it as a justice issue and we'll unpack all of this as we go along. So, but today what I want to do is just offer a theological foundation. That's where we're going to start. And one of the, one of, there's a lot of places in scripture we could do this. Um, we could certainly go back to Genesis. We'll reference some of those verses uh, before we go too far. But we've spent a whole series in Genesis last year. So I wanted to spend some time somewhere else. And to do that, what we're going to do is look at Psalm 104. And what's great about Psalm 104 is it, it's going to offer a theological perspective on what it means to view the environment from, from the lens of the scripture. That's what Psalm 104 is going to do. And, and so for you, um, you have to understand this is not going to necessarily provide a scientific perspective. This, this was written a really long time ago. But what's really cool is the theology of Psalms really kind of lines up in a lot of ways with some of the best science, environmental science that's out there. So, but, but still, at the same time, it's going to offer a nice theological perspective. So Psalm 104, if you have your Bibles, go there. And if not, you can look up on the screen and uh, we'll have some of the verses up there. So here it is, Psalm 104, starting with verse 1. Let's look at that. So it says this, praise the Lord, my soul, Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. To, to say that God is great in, in this psalm in particular, and you'll see this as the, the, the verses go along, to say that God is great, what it's really saying, it, it's talking about God as if God is king, 
What it's really saying is that God reigns supreme. This kind of greatness in the Hebrew was frequently associated with sovereignty. And so what we're going to see is the psalmist is going to go on and talk about God's greatness, God's supreme reign, how God is setting up a throne in a kingdom. We sang about God's kingdom today in one of our songs, Build Your Kingdom Here. How God is building a kingdom and is going to use some really poetic language to do that. So verse 2, it goes on. The Lord wraps himself in light as a garment. All right, so now we're dealing with some cool metaphors here. And it's going to talk about things that God is doing in metaphorical ways. So he's using light as a garment, which is a powerful, you know, hard to understand. How do you wrap yourself in light? He stretches out the heavens like a tent. This echoes to like the days of the tabernacle. And we're talking about tents and the heavens. So now we've got some tabernacling going on, God dwelling. He's setting up camp. Nomadic society, when the Psalms would have been written, you know, like you set up a tent, that means you're going to stay for a little while. You're not sleeping under the stars. He's setting up, he's setting up residence, and he lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. I mean, now I just, my, my mind goes to like Greek and Roman mythology, right? Like this is just beautiful language, but the clouds are his chariot and the wings of the, the, the wind is like his wings. He makes the winds his messengers. The, the word here could also be angels, they're the same word, but he makes the winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants, so now he's got this royal palace filled with all of these servants, and he sets the earth on its foundation so that it can never be moved. So in all of this kind of poetic language, we get this picture that God is kind of moving in. Or as it says in Isaiah 66.1, this is what the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is is my footstool. Where's the house you'll build for me? Where will, you, will my resting place be? This is interesting because footstool, um, w- many of us probably have footstools. I, I recently got one. They're great um, for putting your, you know, if you don't have a recliner, they're fantastic. Footstools wasn't a common thing in houses necessarily. It was tied to a throne. And when scripture refers to a footstool, it's talking about a throne. Um, uh, the common person would just kind of sit on the ground and lean, and that was kind of still common in a lot of places in the Middle East, but footstools were attached to thrones, and so what we're talking about is God is sitting on his throne, and earth is the footstool of this throne, which is an interesting place to put earth. This thing that we live on, as big as it is, is, is the footstool of God's throne. What I love about this is we get this picture that this planet, this world we live in, is first and primarily God's. To do as as God would like. That God has come to dwell with us. And we think of this often, that God has come to dwell with us. This is a big part of our faith. That's the whole incarnation of Jesus coming at Christmas to come and dwell amongst us. But even before this idea of God dwelling with us through Jesus or later through the Holy Spirit who tabernacles inside of us, before any of that's even in Scripture, we get the sense that God is dwelling in the earth. That the earth was created not first for humans or the rest of creation, but as a place for God to kind of roam and dwell and to live and to enjoy and to interact. We're in God's house. Growing up, uh, churches were in a traditional church. I guarantee you this was a perspective held in this building at one time. But growing up, churches were God's house. Anyone else grow up going to old school church? God's house. Don't walk on the pews. This is God's house. So there's always an older woman, and I just made her voice really deep. I'm sorry. But you know, like, this is God's house. You can't 
I was, I was literally chewed out once as a pastor because I wore um, khakis, button-up shirt. I think I had a tie, but I didn't have a jacket or a robe, and I was in God's house. Well, this isn't how we view God's house, um, but I think it's an interesting example because what we see in Scripture is that all of creation is sort of God's house, and I think we should be taking that seriously. I think we should be thinking about how we are using and how we're living and how we're exploiting or not cultivating. What's our relationship to creation? Because way more than a building, all of creation is God's house. Now, I would say even further, humans are where God sort of dwells in a very intimate and personal way. And so that once again, how we interact with humans is, is a similar conversation, but that's for another sermon. But all of creation is this place where God, in other words, the earth doesn't belong to us. Or as it says in Psalm 24.1, which is the theme verse for this series, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and the hall who live in it, and he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. As creator and sustainer, God gets first dibs. This doesn't belong to us. Now, politically, you know, the way in which, politically I mean by the way in which we organize ourselves as people, we can own land, but theologically you don't own land. You can't own a tree, theologically. I understand politically, practically, you can like, that's my tree, I can do what I want with it, or whatever the, you know, the, the codes say I can do with it, but theologically, it's not your tree. In the land where you're, I, I, we bought a house and we bought a little, you know, that comes with a side lot. And it's so weird. Like, we, this is our land. It, only within the kind, confines of, like, what the government says it is. And only what the bank says it is because we don't actually own it. So it's not really even ours. But if it was, like, still theologically not ours. I had the chance once to live on a reservation, um, uh, the Northern Cheyenne Reservation out west. Beautiful country. Beautiful land. And uh, we were there for the whole summer. We were hosting mission trips. I was the work projects manager. And um, so every week I would organize work projects for kids. But on the weekends, we just hung out on the res. And it was awesome. Um, There was like four of us and then like three other people our age on the entire reservation, it seemed like. So, you know, there's a real beauty to just not having a lot of people to choose from to hang out with because you just like, you hang out with what you get and you don't overthink it. Like I overthink relationships all the time, but no, like these are your people by default. And so we would hang out, we would go and see, and I was talking about, we wanted to go see a landmark. I don't even remember what the landmark was, but there were so many fantastic landmarks worth seeing. Uh, Big cliffs and mountains and vistas and, Um, uh, places where you could just climb up and look out for miles and miles and miles. Beautiful, beautiful country. And we wanted to go to one, and we were talking to uh, one of the elders, one of the Cheyenne people, and um, about where we could go and how we would get there. And he's like, well, you kind of have to walk there, but you, you can't walk there by yourself. And I was like, why? And he's like, well, all of this land is our land. And on the reservation, their view of the land is that it's owned by a people. So Personal property rights is kind of a funny thing on the reservation, at least on this one. They kind of exist um, technically, but like culturally, they don't. And so you could go, anyone can just go. It's not on anyone's land if you belong to the reservation, if you're Cheyenne. But if you're not, you should probably go with a guide because this is Cheyenne people's land. And I've always thought about that. And And quite honestly, that perspective of land is much closer to what we see in Scripture. 
this idea of I can own a part of the earth is so um, not, a, not the picture of, that we get from Scripture. Um, in the Old Testament, people, a people, the people of God owned land, and it was divided up amongst tribes, smaller subsets of that people. And sure, individuals had to steward and manage parts of that, but the land was God's first for his people. There's this uh, great little uh, clip by a comedian, um, and uh, it talks about how we view land and how, uh, specifically how the British view land. Some of you might have seen it. It's, it went viral. It's, it's got little Lego characters acting it out. Um, I think it's a good example of what I'm trying to illustrate here. Let, let's, let's play this. We built up empires. We stole countries. That's what you do. That's how you build an empire. We stole countries with the cunning use of flags. Yeah. <laughs> you just sail around the world and stick a flag in. I claim India for Britain. And they go, you can't claim us. We live here. 500 million of us. Do you have a flag? We don't need a flag, it's our country, you No flag, no country, you can't have one. That's the rules that I've just made up. There's this sense that uh, this is kind of extreme, but I think we do this sometimes. I think we forget whose this is. You know, who does this really belong to? I mean, just like, I'll stick a flag in it. I remember watching a show that's like how large parts of the West was divvied up. I think Tom Hanks, uh, not Tom Hanks, uh, Tom Cruise was in it. Anyone know what I'm talking about? And they'd race, and then if you got the flag in there first, like, I'll put a flag in it, it's mine now. This is how our country was formed, and the land didn't belong to us to begin with, and it's very complicated. But the, the first step, a theological foundation of what it means to care for creation, is to recognize, as Christians especially, that this doesn't belong to us. That, that we have been invited to be stewards and managers of God's creation. And we can't just stick a flag in it and say, this is mine. I can do what I want with it. I want, I want it to be comfortable. I want it to be easy, whatever. You can't do that. So that's step one, um, which leads us to step two. First, we don't own it. Uh, instead of thinking of ourselves, second, instead of thinking of ourselves as owners, we need to Think of ourselves as managers, as stewards. And so what I'm going to suggest is we're called not to consume, but cultivate. So let's go back to Psalm 104. Here's what it says. I'm going to read a couple of different verses. Um, Psalm 104, 14 to 15 says this. The psalmist goes on. He says, he makes grass grow for the cattle and plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth, wine that gladdens the human hearts. I'm glad that's in there oil to make their faces shine, and bread that sustains their hearts. I love that because he's talking about um, taking raw materials. We're talking about grapes, we're talking about olives, and we're talking about grain. And we take these raw materials and we make something new out of it. And that keeps us alive. Like we got to drink and we got to eat and these are good things for you. But I love the psalm because he's not talking about just nutrients here. He's talking about joy. We're supposed to take these raw materials and they're going to give us a glad, they're going to make our hearts glad, they're going to sustain our hearts. And I'm pretty sure he doesn't mean, you know, like a healthier heart, like you see on the, you know, the Cheerios box, like, oh, whole grain oats will make a healthy heart. That's not what the psalmist is talking about here. He says bread that's going to sustain their hearts is a way of saying bread that is going to, you're just going to really enjoy this homemade baked 
bread, taking something from the earth and making something out of it. This idea of cultivation goes back all the way to Genesis, of course. Genesis 2.15 says this, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and tend it. I love uh, my son because he's so funny sometimes. He uh, will ask these questions. He's a four-year-old, so he's asking all the four-year-old questions. And uh, he, he, for a season, he kept asking this question in a variety of different ways. He would, say, he would say, Mom, why did God invent tables? Or like, God, Mom, why did God invent cars? And each time, Alyssa would have to explain to him that God didn't invent tables. God created humans and gave them creativity and the ability to do things with the stuff they saw. And so we, humans created tables. We built tables. Like we, we built a lot of other things and they're cool and they're good and they make us happy and there's nothing wrong with that because we should be taking raw materials and making something out of it and that is a good and beautiful thing. Here, think about it like this. The Bible starts in a garden and it ends in a city. Okay. So it starts in a garden, which is just filled with raw materials, but it ends in a city, which is basically human ideas put into place. Now, I would say that it's probably not like a lot of our cities. It's going to be very different from the cities that we know, but it's still a city in the sense that it is built by the creativity that God has given us. Now, here's the problem that I want to just spend a few moments on. I, I think many of us have separated ourselves from those, those, those raw materials from creation itself, and we're just enjoying the fruit of it. For example, I have made bread once in my life, and I didn't make it from grain that I grew and then ground up. And I, I'd be, I'm sure there are some of you, I, I, in fact, knowing our community, there's probably at least one of you who grew all of the ingredients you needed and then prepared it and then made bread from it. But I'm guessing that the majority of us have not started with the earth and produced something that then we were able to do something creative with. And I think something happens when we cut ourselves off from those raw materials. We become separated from creation and it becomes very easy to become consumers, not cultivators. Because we don't have a relationship with creation anymore. We're not thinking about where it's coming from. Um, we're not thinking about, in fact, we, we have, a, instead of a relationship with, with creation and then the creator, we have a relationship with brands. For example, there are certain kinds of bread that I love. Kroger has this rustic white bread, loads of sugar, bleached flour, the best peanut butter and jelly sandwich you can have. It's fantastic, always out of stock. If it's in stock, I'm buying three loaves. Alyssa's buying three loaves, and we're freezing it because we love it. I have a relationship. I can tell you about a brand, but I've never had a relationship with the earth and with creation in such a way in which that I made bread that I'd, especially bread that I enjoyed. I'll add that little detail. I don't think I enjoyed the bread I made. I was like, this is terrible. Zero connection. When I was talking with Ryan, our, um, uh, the, the professor that I'm friends with, I asked him, you know, what are some of the ways that we can actually make a difference in creation? And I found this really interesting because he, he's referencing, you know, as an individual, there's, there's um, if you listen to the podcast, there's a variety of policy changes that need to take place. But, but as individuals, what are some of the things that we can do differently that's really accessible for just me and you? And he shared some lists. And, and what was interesting is he shared a couple points, and I've heard these in a variety of other places. Uh, you can listen to his references on the podcast, but if you Google it, you can find a variety of uh, documentaries and, and research around this, but, but most of the most practical things you can do to help the environment is related to how you consume food. 
Number one on, on the list he referenced was throw away less food. Uh, so much of the food that we throw away, and this is global, uh, produces uh, an immense amount of greenhouse gases. And I don't understand how all it works, but consuming less, uh, throwing away less food is the number one thing. And the second one is eating less meat, which is really interesting. Now, I know we have some meat lovers uh, here, and uh, I, I, we, we eat plenty of meat, but it's still uh, one of the ways. And, and the problem with meat isn't, isn't meat itself, but it's the industrialized meating industry. Uh, if you're buying local, there's a, there's some great benefits, but but um, when it comes to the industrialized industrialized meeting industry, it's extremely bad for the environment. And what's really interesting about this is when we dig into scripture and we talk about Psalms 104 and going back to kind of like the earth and just have like cultivating it and being a person who's really engaged in creation and not just buying into brands. But then we also talk about even eating less meat. I just want to say for those who are like love meat, I want from a biblical perspective, and I'm not going to get into it today. The meat, eating meat's a nuanced thing in scripture. Eating meat was an original part of creation, uh, not until the flood. Uh, most times that they ate meat uh, was in the context of a sacrifice. Taking the life of an animal was viewed as a gift, as this was a living creature, and you're, I'm aware of where it came from, and I'm aware of the life that it gave. I had a theology professor, and he says, one of the best things you can do um, when it comes to eating meat is kill it yourself, so you knew what was, what was at stake. And I, I mean, it really got me thinking. It really got me thinking. One of the great examples is Daniel. Um, so many times meat was eaten in context of being offered as a sacrifice, not only in Israel, but in other cultures. You didn't take the life of an animal without offering it to your gods as a sacrifice because you were taking a life. And so uh, meat offered to idols is a major theme in scripture. And it was happening when Daniel was living in foreign land and they had meat and they liked to eat a lot of it. And Israelites didn't. Plus, they didn't eat meat that was offered to idols. And Daniel says, I'm going to be a vegetarian. Thank you very much. And here I'll show you why it works. And so you have these stories, these snippets, and the early church, once again, and even when you did eat meat, they didn't eat blood in it because the blood represented the life and you didn't want to take advantage of it. All of this to say this. Finn said to me the other day, my little four-year-old, he's like, he's like, yeah, this is chicken, but it's not the same as like the farm animal chicken, right? And I was like, I'll be honest with you, I was just like, uh, change the subject. <laughs> and I kind of regret that. This is another example, like the whole meeting industry, food industry. This is another example of how we've cut ourselves off from the raw materials, from the source. We don't even think about where it comes from, the sacrifice that was given, what it cost a, a creature that God created. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying we should think about it more to the point where I forget that chicken came from an animal. I was on a mission trip in Ecuador, and um, they were like, hey, we're... We're, we're slaughtering the chickens, and you want to come watch? And I'm like, yes. Never watched chickens be slaughtered before. That says something about me, doesn't it? In our, in our culture, we're literally taking the life of something God created, and I'm completely oblivious of it. So I watched for the first time. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Just, you know, I don't know. Google it, but be careful. I don't know. I watched it, and I was like, this you are. We are taking the life. So all I'm saying is, is both of these things that I'm suggesting is for us to wrestle with this, that this is God's creation. And, and this is where I'm going to end in, in, in uh, just a couple more verses here. The, the last thing has to do with this. Not everything in creation is for us. 
Go, go on to the next verse, uh, is, or skip back to, uh, I think it's verse um, 10, and then we'll skip ahead. He says this, and God says, he makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. They give water to, now listen to who these things are for. They give water to all the beasts of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds of the sky nest by the waters. They sing among the branches. He waters the mountains from his upper chambers. The land is satisfied by the fruit of his work. He makes grass grow for who? For the cattle. The trees of the Lord are, once again, whose trees? Not mine. The trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon that he planted, there the birds make their nests. The stork has its home in the junipers. The high mountains belong to the wild goats. The high mountains belong to the wild goats, he says. And the crags are a refuge for the hyrax, which is, a, which is an animal. In other words, Psalm is reminding us, and this is really important. First, this doesn't belong to us. Second, we're called to cultivate, not consume. We're supposed to have a relationship with creation that's different, that's respectful, that understands the life that's being given. And third, not everything is for us. I think this is really important for us to hear because I think we assume, and this is our American culture, I'm just going to say it, where if it exists on planet Earth, it's for us to do kind of whatever we want to because we are dominion over creation. This is rooted in Scripture, this American concept of dominion. Is a, is a, it was a, a sub-Christian perspective, but it fails to understand the complexities of what Scripture teaches. Not everything in Scripture, I mean, not everything in creation is for us. The trees are for the birds, the mountains are for the goats. Like, God doesn't want all else to die just so we can be comfortable. In the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about that. We're going to look at some Scripture passages that talk about pollution, because that's in the Bible. We're going to talk about uh, some scripture passages that talks about uh, shepherds that are exploiting their sheep and uh, how that tends to lead us to exploiting each other. Uh, how we relate to creation that God created often influences how we love or treat one another and how we build society. So we're going to spend some time and talk about that. But all I want us to say and all I want you to hear today, if I haven't driven it home yet, is this world is not ours. And we're called to be stewards, but we should be ethical stewards. Of creation. So my homework for you is to challenge you to think about what is your relationship to creation? What are you consuming and where is it coming from? There's a variety of resources you can, uh, that can help you online by Googling it, as well as if you go to uh, our website and our podcast, centralcity.co slash podcast, I encourage you to listen to the conversation we had with uh, Professor Fote. Um, it was very fascinating and I think really helpful. So with that, uh, let's pray. God, we come before you and we ask that you would forgive us. We have not loved you with our whole hearts. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. And we have not always been good stewards of your creation. Lord, there are times when I have been selfish. When I put my comfort above what I know is right. When I failed to be an obedient church. A disciple of you, somebody who's called to lay down our lives help us Lord forgive us 
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.